You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord God, with your word open before us, we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, that Jesus Christ might be lifted up to the glory of the Father. Amen. We are turning our attention to Psalm 23. I know that psalm is really familiar to many of you. It evokes certain feelings. I'd like us to see if we can also underscore the truth that evokes those feelings in Psalm 23. The lyrical beauty of this psalm is is uncontested. Uh, We like its cadence, its rhythms. The last few years in studying the Psalms, uh, I've underscored in myself the sense that this is Jesus' prayer book. He prayed these Psalms. And certainly this Psalm Jesus drew on often as he spoke to people about his mission. The Psalm has a kind of quality in American folklore of amazing grace. It's something that Americans love to sing that song. It evokes strong feelings, and Psalm 23 does that as well. But how important it is to distinguish between uh, a poem that captures our spiritual and emotional imagination and the profound truth of salvation that's underscored by this psalm. David, the poet, the shepherd king, is right up there along with Abraham and and Moses. Interestingly, all three were shepherds, literally and figuratively. God chose the image of the shepherd to underscore how he would lead his people. And the psalm is based on that big picture of salvation because it draws images of the Exodus and of the Passover. And Jesus draws images from this in the Mark 6 chapter that was read. Jesus had the people lie down on green grass. And then he goes on to say, uh, Mark does, that Jesus said that they were like sheep without a shepherd. It's as if Psalm 23 is in the background of that whole occasion. Isaiah likened the coming one to a shepherd who tends his flock, who gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart and gently leads those who have young. Well, Jesus is that ideal good shepherd And Psalm 23 is in the flow of the Psalms. That's another thing that we often will pull out a Psalm and and we focus on that, but the Psalms were put together with a sense of, of continuity. So Psalm 22 and 23 and 24 are really all connected and all have in view in the foreground of the Lord's anointed. You remember Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you remember Psalm 24, lift up your gates, lift up your gates that the Lord of glory may come in. 
This past week, I was moving some books, and I came across uh, an eight-by-five three-ring notebook that my father-in-law had kept notes on all 150 psalms. My father-in-law was a missionary in the Congo in Brazil, died a few years ago at 93, and uh, I inherited that notebook. Uh, I like to think I inherited it and didn't steal it. Um, but the, he put three symbols for these three psalms. The symbol of Psalm 22 was the cross, and the symbol of Psalm 23 was the crook, the shepherd's crook, and the symbol for Psalm 24 was the crown. And he talked about the past, present, and future captured in these three psalms. Well, Jesus builds on the metaphor of the good shepherd. He distinguishes himself from the blindness and the corruption of the bad shepherds. And the prophets did this all the time, drawing on this analogy of the shepherds and the bad shepherds. But Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Again, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep by name, and they know me just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus merges the metaphor of the good shepherd with the metaphor of the Lamb of God, especially pronounced in the Gospel of John. And you recall that breakfast by the beach where after the resurrection, Jesus talks to Peter who had denied him three times. And Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter responds, yes, you know that I love you. And Jesus' response to him was, feed my sheep, care for my lambs, tend to my sheep. It wasn't launch a crusade, it wasn't uh, work for the kingdom, it wasn't take back life from Rome, it was feed my sheep. Over the last few months, I, I knew I was going to be preaching on Psalm 23, and I uh, picked up a book that had been on the New York Times bestseller list, James Rebanks' The Shepherd's Life. Uh, Rebanks is an Oxford grad, but he's devoted his life as a shepherd. He grew up, his grandparents were shepherds in the Lake District in England, and he uh, gravitated toward that lifestyle. Uh, and in that book, he makes much of the responsibility of shepherds to feed sheep and the hard work that is. It's 24-7, and it takes planning over the whole year. You're harvesting hay this time of year in July, and you're praying in England in the Lake District, these shepherds are, that the hay doesn't get soaked because then it's ruined. But if it can dry out, he says, you bust out a bale of hay in the winter and you get a smell of summer. But there was also something else that attracted to me about the book, and it's the very last line in James Reborn's book. This is my life. I want for no other. This is my life. I want for no other. Now, reading the book, uh, he's lived a pretty godless life, a wonderful life, a good life, a decent life. 
but without any place for God. And I thought, you know, this is a great statement for someone. This is my life. I want for no other. It, it speaks of contentment. It speaks of I, I, I don't need to achieve I, I, something else. I'm, I'm settled. I'm good with this. And yet I put that in contrast with the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. This is my life. I want for no other. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. It seems like those two statements are really radically different. In one sense, both positive. What does it mean for the Lord to be our shepherd? And shepherd comes from, uh, our word for pastor comes from the Latin version of shepherd. So you could read this, the Lord is our pastor. I shall not want. This psalm begins and ends with Yahweh. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and concludes, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life as I dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And between that, there's 17 first-person words, I, me, my. And yet, it is not a me-centered psalm, it's not an I-centered psalm. It's not a self-centered psalm. It is a Lord-centered psalm. And it's very interesting. There's, it's kind of, you can break the psalm in half. It's just six verses, but the first half has a lot to do with sort of the wilderness. Uh, green pastures, the idea of being led by a quiet stream, of, uh, of entering the valley of the shadow of death, but fearing no evil for your rod and your staff, they comfort me. But the second half has a lot to do with the host and the guest and the Passover. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. It has a sense, and my colleague, uh, Alan Ross, calls this uh, emblematic parallelism, that you can take both halves, and it's like a a medieval diptych, a, a painting that you would see as an altarpiece, and both halves correspond to one another. He leads me beside quiet waters. You anoint my head with oil. He refreshes my soul. My cup overflows. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. So shepherd and sheep, host and guest, And you could almost, you could add a line in between that the Lord is my host, I shall not want. And there's that symmetry there of of what salvation means. There are seven features in this uh, psalm that I think are are really important to bring out. uh, And I'll run through them, uh, but they are there for meditation, I think, and reflection. Rest and provision for life, the Lord provides. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet streams. He refreshes my soul. Guidance in righteousness. He guides me along right paths for his name's sake. Comfort in crisis. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. 
for fellowship and protection through hospitality, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Fifth, affirmation for significant work. You anoint my head with oil. Six, goodness in providence. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And seventh, everlasting security and community and worship. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Part of my work is to train people to become pastors. I look at my students at Beeson as part of my pastoral team to mentor, to teach, to guide. This little psalm of six verses is profound in the work that I do because the Lord is our pastor. Therefore, we shall not want. If I'm your pastor, in place of the Lord, you will always be dissatisfied because the rest, the guidance, the comfort, the fellowship, the significance, the security that this psalm speaks of cannot be provided by middle management. Do you realize that uh, I am no more spiritual and no more called than you are? That all disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ and his followers, their prayers are as acceptable and God is as responsive as the prayers of people who are ordained as pastors. There are no special Christians. There are no elite Christians. We're all followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not a pastor's agenda that uh, develops a church. You know, we have this tendency of identifying a church by a building and by a person. Klingman's common is a testimony to that. But it is the Lord who is our pastor. And that's why it's so important for each and every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ to really be personally connected, related, in communion with the Lord. That's the only way we'll ever say the Lord is our rest and we shall not want. The Lord is our wisdom and we shall not want. Being a pastor means that one is never very far from people going through the deepest, darkest valley. Craig has come to my class in pastoral theology several times to talk about the caring ministry at, at the Advent. And those have always been very meaningful sessions. We're never very far from the deepest, darkest valley. And as a pastor, when I come to church on Sunday, I realize that somebody in the congregation is going through their deepest, darkest valley today. But let me say this. I think Craig would agree with me. Pastors can't live vicariously, always in the deepest, darkest valley. 
And that pastors need to develop the ability to be able to point to Christ. And you and I need to develop the ability to point to Christ as people are going through the deepest, darkest valley. Empathy, compassion, togetherness, prayer for, all of that is part of what I'm saying here. But you and I, we need to be dependent on the Lord as our pastor. Every time a pastor officiates at Holy Communion, the congregation is reminded that it's the Lord who set the table. It's the Lord who gave his life. It's the Lord who shed his blood. The Lord is our Savior, and we shall not want. How often I wish I could take over for the Lord and anoint someone, make them feel the significance that they long for. We would like to anoint and to designate and to call and empower, but that's not our calling. That's the Lord's work, and we can't play God. I would like to make people's cup overflow, but I can't. Only the Lord can do that. And together, we seek first Christ's kingdom and his righteousness. Congregations, I think, know instinctively that churches should not be built around a pastor's ego, nor should they be built around institutional loyalty. It is the Lord's house. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's the Lord's house. The Lord is our pastor, and we shall not want. In just six verses of simple, simple language and common images, Psalm 23 captures something of the beauty and the depth of our personal relationship with the living God. It's like a beautiful bouquet. It's a simple psalm, earthy imagery, enduring metaphors, but somehow, after all these years, I turned 72 weeks ago, I can't get to the bottom of it. The truth is too powerful. The truth is too real. And only Christ's Eucharistic meal does justice to the psalmist imagery of a table prepared in the presence of our enemies. We're reminded of the fulfillment of the Passover imagery, the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep, and we hear the prophet Isaiah say, we all like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And then we hear the Savior say, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And we hear the Savior take up the cup. This cup is the new covenant that I pour out with my blood. We are meant to read Psalm 23 
in the light of the gospel. So at 3 a.m., when you wake up worried and your mind goes to Psalm 23, as one dear saint said to me during after the 7.30 service, understand the profound salvation truth. The Lord is our pastor, and we shall not want. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.